This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. The Securities and Exchange Commission's Office of Compliance, Inspections, and Examinations and FINRA's Risk Monitoring and Examination Programs have published their 2020 examination priorities. The reports flag key compliance issues for financial services firms. We'll give you the highlights today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to Insecurities, a new podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Good to be with you, Chris. On each episode of the podcast, we'll get you up to speed on hot topics and trends in the securities regulatory world, offering a practitioner's perspective on the rules, regs, and cases you should be following. Today, we're focusing on two regulators announcing their exam priorities for the year 2020. The SEC's OCIE and FINRA have both put out reports regarding what they'll be looking for this year. And for those of you following along on the acronym BINGO, we'll be covering those acronyms in a later episode, along with a whole host of others. Before we dive into the exam priorities, Chris, let's touch on a couple noteworthy regulatory developments. You want to tell us a little bit about auditor independence rules? I'd love to. For those of you who've been in the legal and accounting world for a significant period of time, at least dating back to the early 2000s, uh, auditor independence has been a developing field uh, with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, uh, following many of the financial accounting and audit scandals of the early 2000s. um, Auditor dependence became a focus point both for accounting firms as well as audit committees at publicly traded companies and other SEC filers. Over the past few weeks, the SEC has contemplated and provided a proposal to limit the rules around auditor independence. This may appear a little bit contrary to popular opinion about auditor independence in weakening the rules and regulations related to accountants and the relationship they can and may have with with specific clients, but the SEC in, in their proposal is very cognizant to only focus on those issues that are technical violations of the current compliance rules around independence, but in fact, do not present a substantial threat to an actual auditor's independence. Uh, The example they bring up in the proposal relates to uh, an audit firm that audits a lender, and and another partner joins that firm, uh, not working on the audit for the lender, not not engaged in any way to to do work on the lender. But if that second partner comes into the firm and actually owes student loan debt to that lender, technically that would be a conflict. Uh, so, you know, it seems from, from the SEC's perspective that, you know, such a scenario would be, in fact, a, a violation of, of an independence rule that stands today and does not actually present a substantial risk uh, of violating independence uh, in the commission's mind. So this proposal goes to respond to many of those issues uh, as they come up. So it'll be oversimplifying to say that the rule proposal is designed to smooth over some technical conflicts issues that have existed under the existing regulatory framework in order to let people do business in situations where there's no real or substantive conflict. That's right. And the commission also made a point to say that they want to limit the time that audit committees have to spend contemplating 
independence rules that they feel may not be substantive uh, conversations that the committee itself is having. So uh, other examples of, of changes in the proposal include, we talked about de minimis consumer loans, uh, some of the definitions. Uh, currently, the phrase substantial stockholder uh, is listed in the rules, and that's really not well defined. So they're, they've elected to or proposed to change that to uh, beneficial owners with significant influence, which would be a little bit easier to interpret from an audit committee perspective, as well as from the audit perspective. Certainly an interesting development, Chris. Um, Also interesting that one of the issues that's being flagged up by this rule proposal is one of definition. And that brings us to the the second development that we're going to talk about today before we switch to our main topic. And that is an SEC rule proposal to change the definition of, quote, accredited investor, unquote. The definition of an accredited investor determines who can invest in private companies. And there has been chatter for the past several years about whether the definition of accredited investor should be broadened to allow more investors to invest in private companies. The rule proposal that the SEC put forth in December would do just that and would have the effect of expanding private offerings to new investors. In the past, the accredited investor definition has revolved largely around things like the net worth of an investor. That's right. Under the proposed definition, they would consider other factors like the investor's level of sophistication. And the SEC thinks that it's a good idea to encourage more people to participate in the capital markets and to the extent that they want to participate in private offerings to pull down barriers that in the past have prevented them from being able to uh, to participate in those offerings. So we'll see what happens with with the rule proposal. It's getting mixed reviews, as you, as you might imagine. Um, those who are on the financial services firms or the industry side of the house like it because potentially they can expand the pool of potential investors mm-hmm. um, that they can uh, solicit or to whom they can recommend offerings. Uh, the investor advocacy side of the house says, you know, we, we really didn't want to expand the definition of accredited investor. Um, they perhaps would have advocated to narrow the definition of accredited investor. So as we've seen with so many rulemakings over the last year or year and a half, there's a, a very serious divide in opinions from industry participants about what is the, the best path forward. We'll see what happens, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on in 2020 as we get in into and through the comment period, look forward to uh, a final rule and see what the SEC actually puts in place. All right, Chris, well, I think it's always good to take a couple minutes um, to think about some important regulatory developments that maybe don't make their way into our, our main topic of discussion. But let's segue and move into what we came here to talk about today, which are OCs and FINRA's exam priorities for 2020. At the beginning of each year, the SEC's Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations puts out its list of exam priorities for the coming year. Along with those exam priorities, OC focuses the readers of its exam priorities on a variety of different issues and and results from the the prior year. Uh, And 2019 seemed to be a great year for OC uh, in terms of their activity, uh, their their statistics, and their seeming ability to overcome uh, what we've continued to talk about and probably will for at least a few more months, that that 35-day government shutdown, which 
I, I appreciated their euphemism here of, of just using the phrase lack of appropriations. I thought that was an artful way to describe uh, uh, what we felt here in D.C. during that period. So um, the statistics and, and everything along with the OC report, uh, you guys can definitely take a look at. But interested in, in Kurt's discussion uh, of, of those stats, of some of the background, as well as as we get into those specific exam priorities. At the beginning of each year, OC and FINRA publish their exam priorities for the coming year to give regulated entities and the markets a heads up about what they're going to focus on in examinations throughout the year. What they're trying to do is identify key areas of risk, both existing and emerging, that the Commission and FINRA expect regulated entities to identify and mitigate. That is, to communicate where the agencies see the potential for risk to firms or harm to investors. I want to walk first through the SEC's stated priorities for 2020 and then talk for a minute about FINRA's priorities and, and then let's kind of see how they compare and contrast, because I think sometimes that's where the most interesting analysis is. I mean, you can walk through the SEC's roadmap, you can walk through Finner's roadmap. Mm-hmm. But I think if what we're thinking about is from a, a broader securities regulatory perspective, what is important to the regulators, you can kind of see where, where do they gel, where do they overlap. And that gives you, I think, a more comprehensive picture of the things that financial services firms ought to be thinking about as they approach exam season and they build out their compliance programs. Before we get into the details, Kurt, it seems to me this is a little bit the uh, the teacher giving away the test to the students before uh, the pop quiz. Is this a leading exercise in which not only the regulators are signaling what they're interested in, but almost giving a nod for, for firms to get ready and prepare this documentation, say, before they even show up? Or, or am I thinking a little bit too uh, critically about uh, telling your uh, constituents how you're going to examine them? No, I I think that's absolutely what they're doing. And I think, you know, we have to think about the function of OC or FINRA's exam team very differently than we would think about enforcement, for Mm -hmm. example. I mean, here, they want firms to, to pass this, you know, quote, test, right? And if you look at the exam priorities year over year, they tend to build on one another or sometimes repeat one another. Um, and what you'll see is some of the things that were in the findings from last year's exam cycle may have fallen off the radar this year. They may be highlighted again this year. Uh, They're also building into the exam priorities for the year, things that they learned from the last exam cycle. So if last year, I think OC, for example, examined over 3,000 registered firms. Mm -hmm. They will have taken away from those examinations some weak points that they identified in the market. And what they're trying to do, rather than play a gotcha game that results in everybody getting a deficiency letter, what they want to do instead is say, hey, you know, heads up, here are some things that we found that people weren't doing particularly well, or maybe just things where we think that firms need to do a little bit better. If we come knocking on your door, we expect that you read our findings, that you've read our exam um, priorities for the year, and that you're addressing those issues to the extent that you're not quite up to snuff. Yeah. And OC is proud of this issue in its exam priorities report. As it points out that for many of the firms that it issued deficiency letters for in fiscal 19, uh, those firms have taken direct corrective action in response to the letters, including amending compliance policies and procedures or a regulatory filing, enhancing their disclosures, or even returning fees back to investors. So the regulators are definitely, t- to your point, Kurt, on on the side of firms and want them to to be up to snuff to to meet that benchmark so that they're they're operating effectively and and working to, to help investors. Absolutely. And frankly, if you're a regulated entity, this is the way that you want to resolve a potential compliance shortcoming, Definitely. right? Um, through an exam, 
You'd prefer not to get a deficiency letter, but if you do, that is well below enforcement action, right? It's something that you can potentially resolve collaboratively with the exam staff or other divisions at the commission as necessary. Um, Fix it and, and move on. And hopefully it doesn't ever get to the point where the exam staff feels like they need to make a referral to enforcement or, or otherwise call in enforcement for a consult. You know, we, we hear people talk an awful lot about regulation by enforcement. This is a really good way to avoid it. I think a lot of firms develop a good rapport with the examiners that they see time and again. And this is a very healthy way, I think, for firms and their regulator to engage in a dialogue to work through existing or emerging risks that they face and and resolve compliance issues that are identified. So I think it's a good thing. I think that the way OC and FINRA handle it by listing their exam priorities and later in the year reporting on their findings, really good way to communicate with regulated entities. All right, let's not hold out any longer, Kurt. What are the details we've got for our exam priorities? All right, let's jump in. OC lays out four pillars for its exam program that I think apply equally to the SEC's exam program and FINRA. And they are promoting compliance, preventing fraud, identifying and monitoring risk, and informing policy. And I think that those play out through the dialogue that we were talking about, Chris. Let's talk a little bit about what the SEC is looking for in 2020. Uh, First, I think it's important to note that the SEC's national exam program is broken into five constituent parts or sub-programs. They have the investment advisor or investment company examination program. That's one. Second is the broker-dealer and exchange examination program. Three is the clearance and settlement examination program. Four is the FINRA and Securities Industry Oversight or FSIO, some more acronym bingo, examination program. And and last is the technology controls program. The SEC's exam priorities do not, however, break out cleanly into those five constituent programs. Uh, On the other hand, they're, they're sort of organized thematically, uh, not necessarily intuitively. And if you read through uh, the 2020 exam priorities, which weighs in at about 24 or 25 pages, I think you'll find that there are some uh, some redundancies. I, I hesitate to say inconsistencies, um, but certainly the, the same topic crops up in different contexts a few times throughout. So what? And, and spoiler alert, we might see that with the FINRA exam priorities yeah, as well. I, I think we might, although it's generally, <laughs> at least to my way of thinking, FINRA lays theirs out in a somewhat more Understood. systematic fashion. Um, what I want to do today is not walk through all 26 pages, page by page, but just hit the high points um, and think about looking across the exam program. What are the things that the SEC or, or OC are focusing on? First, we talk about it every week, it seems like, Chris. Yep. Retail investors, that's that's number one. A lot of the focus on retail investors has to do with the disclosures that firms, whether you're an IA or a BD, the disclosures that firms are making to investors. Are they adequate? Are you explaining the fees? Are you explaining your relationship? Are you making enough information available about the particular products? The second thing that OC is focusing on with respect to retail investors is particular sales practices and particular products. 
I, I think increasingly over the last several years, what we're seeing both from OC and on the other side of the house in the enforcement division are focus on on products. I think they're still interested in sales practices, but it feels to me at least like those programs were driven more by sales practices mm-hmm. in the past. Yeah. Now we're looking at particular products. So they're looking at mutual fund share classes. We just had the big self-reporting initiative yep. built around that. It's something they're going to look at again in 2020. They're interested in ETFs, particularly new kinds of ETFs, like some of the non-transparent, actively managed ETFs. They're looking at muni bonds. They're looking at microcaps. And finally, with respect to retail investors, OC is going to look at standards of care. And this, we're going to circle back to it, but again, another one we talk about almost every week, Regulation best interest, Reg BI, Chris, it comes back again, um, and the interpretation regarding the standard of conduct for investment advisors. It's something that OC is going to be looking at throughout the year in 2020. Second big topic for OC is information security. This is where you're going to find cybersecurity um, compliance frameworks built around Reg SP and other uh, state or federal laws that would require you to have information security, uh, governance and risk management policies and procedures, um, policies and procedures for data loss prevention, vendor management, training, incident response and resiliency, all of the things that you would put under the information security or information governance bucket. All right, number three for OC. Fintech and innovation, including digital assets and electronic investment advice. I think here what OC is acknowledging is that there have been tremendous advancements in um, financial technology and the way that financial services firms are delivering services through applications or through online platforms. And what they want to do is is sort of look behind the curtain a little bit to make sure that the firms have the right kind of policies and procedures in place to make sure that where they are now relying on some financial technology or innovation to manage their services, that they're still covering the nuts and bolts, things like suitability analyses, your standard of care, and what have you. This is actually one of my favorite um, viewpoints on the exam priorities. Uh, you know, at least in, in certain circles, fintech, digital assets, robo-advisors, those are the buzzwords that get all the attention. And it's coming at the level that's on the same in the same vein as retail investors, right? So although you might be reading kind of the financial press and seeing some of these more interesting and intricate stories about financial complexities from a technological perspective, the commission's looking at this the same way they look at a mom and pop investor, or at least on the same level of significance. So, uh, you know, be sure to, to follow along with some of those stories. I'm sure we'll be talking about in the coming weeks. But, um, you know, it's always much more fun to say robo advisor than investor A uh, in terms <laughs> when we're talking about individuals. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to talk a little bit about robos again later in the episode. Um, I, I think you're right. It, it, on some level, we could think about all of these exam priority areas through a retail investor lens. And and I think increasingly that's what the SEC is doing. Um, But we've broken them out, uh, as has um, OC. So here we go. Uh, Next are AML programs and infrastructure. And this is really just making sure that regulated entities have in place customer identification programs and policies and procedures to allow them to satisfy their SAR, SAR filing requirement obligations. Market infrastructure is another category that OC is focusing on. And here, this is um, not so much when they're looking at investment advisors or broker-dealers, but here we're talking about clearing agencies, exchanges, transfer agents. And what they want to make sure that they're doing are taking the right steps, both technologically and from a policies and procedures, supervision and monitoring standpoint, um, to satisfy their regulatory obligations. 
this is the plumbing of the marketplace, Absolutely. right? You, you never think about it when it's working, but when it doesn't work, you know, it's it's top of mind for everybody. So knowing that the commission's taking a focus on that is is good to see. Yep. The last two categories are things that we're going to circle back to a little bit, but um, these are more industry segment focused. OC has set out some priorities that relate specifically to investment advisors. Those include things like they're going to look at your compliance program. They're going to look at the disclosures that you have in place around new and emerging investment strategies, things like ESG criteria. They're going to look at the products you're selling and how you're selling them. And interestingly, this year, there's a little bit more of a focus, I think, on investment advisors to private funds. What exactly are the services that you're offering? Um, How are you doing things like valuing the products that you're recommending to private funds? And last, broker-dealers. And here, there's there's always some overlap with FINRA. Of course. FINRA is the primary regulator for broker-dealers, but SEC has regulatory authority in that space too, and they have a dedicated unit within OC that looks specifically at broker-dealers. Those folks this year are going to be looking at what they call financial responsibility. These are a little bit nuts and bolts mm-hmm. kind of things here. I, I think we'll, we'll find that FINRA is a little bit focused more on client-facing issues, sales practices. We'll come on to it in a minute. But for purposes of, of SEC's OC, what they're worried about are things like the customer protection and net capital rules, essentially making sure that firms uh, are holding cash and securities appropriately and in compliance with uh, securities regulations. Um, they're also going to look at trading and risk management. Again, a little bit nuts and bolts. How are you uh, routing orders? How are you handling odd lots, you know, mm-hmm. um, orders for under 100 shares? Some of those more, to use your word, plumbing types yeah. of issues. Not really market-moving activities, but really making sure your shop is in order. And I really appreciated from the the SEC's report kind of their layout of, of what a good compliance program looks like. Uh, I always like when, when an examiner can come in and say, hey, guys, we told you so. Uh, some of the things they talked about are... Uh, you know, early involvement in business development, such as product innovation and new services. Um, having a, a stalwart chief compliance officer uh, is always great to see a, a dedicated individual <laughs> to those issues um, that has full responsibility and, and authority to do what they need to do. So unlike uh, what uh, the popular show Billions, uh, where the compliance officer is put in a, in a corner and never spoken to again, someone who actively participates. Uh, and then obviously, as, as you know, us in the forensic accounting profession and, and fraud risk uh, from a financial reporting side always see the, the tone at the top, you know, how is the executive management and, and the leaders at the at the firm uh, approaching compliance? You know, is it is it something that's put in a corner? Is it that's something that's focused on? Yeah, I agree. I picked up on the same thing when I was reading the exam priorities, Chris. I, I thought it was very helpful how OC laid out some of the hallmarks of a good compliance program. You know, it's it's a roadmap of sorts. Um, it's not all you have to do. Of course. Uh, you know, but I think those Facts are- Facts and circumstances, yeah, Kurt, right. we use often, right? But, but they are certainly building blocks, right? So if OC comes in and you haven't sort of done those fundamental things right, you're going to be more likely, I think, to, to have a deficiency letter coming your way, That's right. <laughs> especially now that they've put it Homework, in, you know, in black Homework, follow up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's switch and talk a little bit about FINRA's exam priorities for 2020. Um, interestingly, 
Like the SEC, FINRA's exam program is grouped into five business models. This is particularly interesting because they've just completely reconfigured their examination program and, and the teams that work in their examination program as part of the FINRA 360 reboot. That's right. Uh, the way that they've restructured it is to build their exam program around what they call business models. And the five that they came up with are retail, capital markets, carrying and clearing, trading and execution, and diversified. With respect to each of those five, there may be subgroups or subunits that focus on, you know, more niche aspects of, of those models. But generally what they've tried to do is something similar to what the SEC did, which is create dedicated teams that know a space within the market that FINRA regulates. So with that background, what are the priorities for FINRA's exam staff in 2020? Again, I, I think that these are grouped, at least in, as I read them, more around risk categories or risk areas. I will say the through line for all of these are that FINRA is focused on your policies and procedures and your supervision and monitoring. I mean, look, it's something that FINRA always talks about. It's something that almost every single FINRA disciplinary action includes in their in their AWC, where they talk about a firm's policies and procedures or supervision. There's often a charge tacked on in the enforcement context where they say you didn't quite either design or implement your policies and procedures effectively to make sure that you didn't have this problem. So I'm not going to, for every one of these categories, say, right. hey, policies and procedures, but just know that that's, that's the through line. Yep. For every single one of these categories, they're going to be looking at the policies and procedures and see who are your supervisors, how are they doing their job, how are you supervising the supervisors. But here are the, the risk categories that I pick up when I read Fender's exam priorities for 2020. First, sale practices and supervision. At the top of that list, Reg BI you got it. and form CRS. Uh, how are broker dealers satisfying their standard of care? How are they communicating with clients about the nature of the relationship, fees, conflicts, et cetera? Um, second under sales practices are communications with the public. Uh, I, I would think of this as sort of advertising for, yeah. you know, for lack of a, a more clear term. Obviously, uh, over at the SEC, we've talked about how they have an advertising rule proposal that was going to apply to investment advisors here. Looks like FINRA is going to be drilling down on the broker-dealers advertisements. And similar to what we saw in the SEC's rule proposal for investment advisors, FINRA is particularly interested in what they call digital channels, which are electronic messages, social media, and how firms are using mobile applications. It sounds like, as we talked about in a prior episode, uh, this update will probably not last the 60-year term of the, the previous right. <laughs> marketing role from the SEC. I, I think that's right. Thinking critically about how the, the environment will change in the future, I think, is why they chose that phrase to talk about messaging and, and digital ads instead of you know just tweets, because I don't know if we'll all be talking to each other with investment advice on TikTok soon, uh, but those are other kind of uh, social media avenues that will be developing. Yeah, over absolutely. The coming years. I mean, I'd like to get my uh, investment advice in 30 seconds or less. I feel like that's uh, <laughs> robust and Discl uh, maybe short yeah. on disclosures, but I, uh, who knows? <laughs> you'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sticking with sales practices and supervisions for two more points. Um, Finner's going to be looking at the sales of IPOs. They're going to focus in particular on how firms are monitoring for flipping. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're going to be looking at trade authorizations. I think that FINRA is constantly concerned about making sure that broker-dealers have appropriate authorization to trade in clients' accounts um, to make sure that they have 
the discretion that is required, that they're not churning or making unnecessary trades. So authorizations is always something that FINRA is going to focus on. All right. So the, the first risk category was sales practices and supervision. Second is market integrity. Similar to, to the SEC, I think they want to make sure that the market is sound, that it's safe for investors who want to participate in our capital uh, in our capital markets. Here, they're talking about reporting requirements, things like Trace and Oats and the Cat, which is going to come online in April. More alphabet bingo. Uh, market access. This is particularly important as a lot of firms um, are, are adopting automated or high-speed trading platforms. They want to make sure that the firms have in place adequate policies and procedures so that they know who is using these online trading platforms and that firms aren't inadvertently allowing people to access our capital markets that shouldn't be for one reason or another. Uh, best execution is another category under market integrity. They're looking at things like routing, odd lots. How are they uh, pricing and executing options trades? Category three, financial management. Um, and this is really, I think, about how how the firms are doing their business. A little bit of a less technical focus, uh, sort of like the nuts and bolts mechanics, the, the technical systems. But this is more, you know, from a policies and procedures standpoint, they're thinking about how are firms thinking about and managing the sale of digital assets. Um, again, we're talking about things like cryptocurrencies. So if you are a firm that's operating as a secondary trading platform, or if you're otherwise facilitating the, the sale or trading of cryptocurrencies, they want to know how you're thinking about that from a management perspective. They want to know how you're thinking about liquidity management. Again, how are you thinking about holding customer cash or securities appropriately? Um, and they're thinking about how firms are preparing to to wean off the LIBOR, which is going to exist no more at the end of 2021. So we got sort of a, a long off-ramp, but firms really should be thinking about the alternatives that they're going to use to the LIBOR or how they're going to build their programs around it going forward. So that's category three. Uh, the last category is firm operations, and these are a little bit more of the technical aspects of how a firm runs. We're looking at things like AML programs and software, cybersecurity, uh, and technology governance. And and there, what they're what they're thinking about from technology governance, because that's sort of an empty phrase. So let me put a little meat on that bone. <laughs> they're talking about customer facing activities, trading operations, your back office and compliance programs. How are they? How are they built out? How are you governing them? What kinds of Again, policies and procedures, supervision, and monitoring apparatus do you have in place? Um, and how are you, as a business, focusing on compliance with rules around business continuity and supervision? So those are relatively quickly uh, the SEC's and FINRA's exam priorities for 2020. I think everybody listening along can definitely hear a lot of overlap. And I think, especially talking about with... Um kind of the relaxing uh, of things like the definition of accredited investor, it sounds, Kurt, like they're making a move to be cognizant of the priorities they need to have out in the market so that when, you know, say a lot more investors get involved with with trading or, or even just become interested in the markets, uh, there's programs in place that are looking to to shore up the firms and the BDs and the IAs that are that are acting in that market to protect those investors. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. There's there's a ton of overlap when you when you read the the agency's exam priorities side by side. You know, a few things jumped out at me mm -hmm. as areas where I think there's either a tremendous overlap or where I think there is an, an increased focus or maybe something, some things that are new. Uh, you know, we've talked about it. We bang this drum all the time. Retail investors. Yep. The SEC and FINRA are very, very focused on how firms are 
building compliance policies and procedures around investor facing elements of the business. How are you recommending and selling products? How are you making disclosures? What disclosures are you making to retail investors? How are you dealing with things like conflicts of interests and fees? Uh, I mean, even if we think about some of the nuts and bolts things like trade execution, these are really all designed to protect retail investors. So for me, that across both uh, both of the agencies' exam priorities, that is the thing that captures everything. That's right. And it's been talked about by commissioners and, and, and speakers on, on behalf of the regulators for you know, probably five or six years um, as, as, a, as a new trend and obviously covered in previous episodes where we talked about trends we saw last year and this year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, number two for me, the, the second biggest thing that kind of runs through um, both agencies' set of exam priorities is, no surprise, regulation best interest. Uh, they both talk about it extensively. Um, they actually both helpfully laid out some of the particular things that they're going to be looking for with respect to your Reg BI compliance. Um, FINRA in particular has several questions bulleted that are the types of things that they think broker-dealers should be thinking about as they prepare to comply with the rule. You know, I think that it's going to be an interesting year from an exam perspective relating to regulation best interest, because as as we sit today, regulation best interest, uh, the compliance deadline is June 30th. That's right. So for firms, um, whether it's, you know, OC and you're an investment advisor being examined through the IA exam program or a BD being examined through OC's BD exam program, um, or whether you know, you're on the thinner side of the house, if you are the subject of an examination in the first half of this year, what they're really going to be looking at is your preparedness. Yeah. You know, how are you building out um, or, or maybe just tweaking or improving your existing compliance infrastructure so that you're ready to be Reg BI compliant on July 1. If you have an exam scheduled for you know July 1 or in the second half of the year, I think the focus is going to be a little bit different, right? We're past preparedness and we're now into how are you actually complying with your obligations under, under Reg BI. I think the things that they're going to be looking at most immediately are things like form CRS, right? Because that's something that every firm is going to have to mm-hmm. do. What are you disclosing to clients in form CRS about the nature of your relationship, about your fee structure, about conflicts of interest? It's sort of low-hanging fruit. What's going to be interesting to see is how the exam programs handle what they perceive to be deficiencies in Reg BI compliance. I think that when, at least on the SEC side, when the directors of enforcement talk about it, they say, hey, look, we're not we're not trying to knock heads immediately, right? If your exam is on July 7th, we're not going to probably, right? I mean, you can imagine a horror story, but Mm -hmm. probably we're not going to bring an enforcement action against you because you did something technically wrong from a Reg BI perspective. I think in keeping with our conversation earlier about the philosophy of the exam staffs, they're going to help try to bring firms along make sure that they're thinking about Reg BI the right way, that they're putting in place the right policies and procedures, the right supervisory procedures, and that they're doing things to to get it right. Uh, I could be wrong, but I'm guessing we're not going to see Reg BI enforcement actions in 2020. And just from kind of the market perspective, I know on the accounting side, you know, Division of Corporate Finance, Corp Fin always the drumbeat that they hit on it at every uh, you know public engagement and speaking event they do is come talk to us. Right. If you've got a question, ask. 
don't sit behind the the wall and, and hope that you don't get inspected or you don't get a, a comment letter from us. And, and that extends to the regulators, uh, you know, obviously the SEC as well as FINRA in this case. The atmosphere is much more collaborative and learning together than it is that kind of gotcha uh, enforcement or, or inspection results uh, coming from these programs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple more things that I think apply um, in both sets of exam priorities. Uh, won't spend as much time talking about them, but I do think they're important to note. Um, one is is cybersecurity. Yes. They've been beating this drum for years. Uh, as, as we said earlier, the exam priorities or the creation of the exam priorities is sort of an iterative process where they're looking at, you know, what have we seen in the past? Where did we identify weak spots in the market? Cybersecurity seems to keep popping up in the exam priorities year after year after year. And I think it's equal parts. Firms haven't quite figured it out or built out those programs yet. Uh, I think firms are dealing with a patchwork of cybersecurity regulations that includes different expectations in different states. For firms that are doing business cross-border, they have very different regulatory compliance expectations in, let's say, Europe uh, than they do, Mm -hmm. even in New York, which Mm -hmm. has a relatively strict standard. So I think what they're trying to do is just signal to the market, hey, you got to sort of be staying on top of this, know the rules, whether you're thinking about Reg SP or whether you're thinking about New York's cybersecurity regulation, you need to have those systems in place. I think that's important to note, too, is it's not just the firms and and the regulated entities that might be thinking about where they are in the maturity spectrum related to cybersecurity. The regulators, too, are working through that kind of patchwork, as you described, for what would apply and what what regulations are meaningful and, and, and helpful to, to the regulated entities and to the retail investors and those that they interact with. Uh, from a cybersecurity perspective. Absolutely. Um, digital assets or cryptocurrencies that are securities. <laughs> um, it's another thing that pops up in both agencies' exam priorities. And I think here what they're really focused on, it's an evolving space. So I think that the focus will continue to to shift and move over time. Right now, I think that at least with respect to digital assets that are or are likely to be deemed securities, they want to know, are you registered? Whether that's as an investment advisor with the SEC or as a you know broker-dealer with FINRA, did you take the steps that you need to, to have the appropriate registration status? Um, if you are recommending those securities to investors, or if you're soliciting investors for digital assets or cryptocurrencies that are securities, um, how are you dealing with suitability issues? How are you taking steps to satisfy the duty of care with respect to recommendations that you're making to investors who may not understand the digital assets space? I mean, if you think that OC and SEC enforcement are concerned about ETFs, yeah. Some of which are pretty vanilla. Yep. Uh, this is much more complex. So, you know, how are you thinking about suitability? How are you thinking about recommendations? What are the, the disclosures around them? And then there's, you know, a host of other sort of more nuts and bolts types of issues you need to think about. Like, how are you um, safeguarding your client's assets? How are you pricing or valuing the digital assets that you're recommending? Um, and how are you supervising your um, your RIAs or your reps who are who are recommending these securities because it's a little bit different, yeah. right? I mean, I think that most firms have a, a pretty good framework around recommending what I would call sort of run-of-the-mill securities. Yep. But this is different. So you might need to think about it a little bit differently from a monitoring or supervision perspective. The last thing that I want to plug, and 
This gets a little bit more play in the SEC's exam priorities than it does in, in FINRA's, but it has to do with electronic investment advice. And these are sort of the, the robo-advisors robo. that you were talking about earlier. It's something that has sort of come on and off the radar in recent years, and it's it's very much back on the radar this year. And I think what we're going to see going forward is, uh, and this is, you know, a, a prediction that I've made privately to some, but I, I think that there is going to be out there for everybody now. Yeah, Craig. exactly. Uh, I, I think that there is going to be a coming together of Reg BI and online advisory platforms. I knew he was going to say it. Because, the, you know, the, the standard of care or some of the disclosure requirements, um, whether it's Reg BI itself or form CRS, um, don't necessarily align with the way that with the way robo advisors are are operating currently or have operated in the past. And so I think that robo advisory firms, especially if you are only a robo advisory firm, but even some of the larger houses that have, you know, a, a side business or a sub that's doing robo advisory work or managing that kind of platform, you just need to think about how are you satisfying your Reg BI compliance obligations with respect to that type of service or tool because it's it's a little bit different. So for me, as I said at the top, I always think it's interesting to sit with these documents side by side and try to pick out the common themes that apply to both OC and FINRA. For me this year, it's retail investors, it's reg best interest, it's cybersecurity, it's cryptocurrencies, and it's uh, electronic investment advice or, or robo-advisor platforms. I think that's a good recap of where things come from the compliance perspective. I know from the accounting side, the one topic that's really been hit on hard uh, in terms of major financial institutions, uh, you know, regulated entities, others are, are interested and nervous about is that LIBOR transition. Uh, for so long, and we could do many hours of discussions about LIBOR and the scandal and, and, and rate rigging and, and everything along those lines, but having to take an entire book of business that has been based on a single metric or tied in some way to that metric and doing away with that metric not only impacts the services that the institution or the the investment advisor or others could provide, uh, but also the way that it's accounted for. When you're representing certain elements on your books and records that are tied to a LIBOR figure, and that figure obviously denotes value related to that that service or that that product, that all needs to change. And so I know the, the CPA world and, and the accountants working with firms that are dealing with LIBOR issues are definitely really um, spinning up those operations. Because 2021, although it is early 2020 here, Kurt, is right around the corner. It is. It is indeed. All right, Chris. Well, I think that was a helpful conversation about OCs and Finner's exam priorities for 2020. If you want to learn more, we're going to put some helpful information up on the website or feel free to reach out to us on social media. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA on Twitter. And you can find me at Enforce underscore update. And in the early days of our podcast, guys, we'd love to hear from you, whether you liked the episodes, didn't, uh, if you'd like to hear about specific topics, if you really want to get Kurt going on Reg BI, if you haven't heard enough already, we really want to participate and provide you guys with stuff you're, you're looking to hear from, from a practicing attorney and an accountant here. So please reach out and let us know. And we'll be happy to, to respond. Please remember to use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod. Uh, we'll be monitoring the hashtag and we'll be happy to get back to you. We've got a lot of fun episodes coming up, uh, looking at some deep dives into things like digital assets, whistleblowers issues, potentially Ponzi schemes, uh, as well as finally hitting on all those acronyms that you hear us say uh, with no issue uh, to help you guys understand what we're talking about. Don't sleep on the Alphabet Soup bonus episode. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll be back with you shortly. See you next time.
Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as host Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Sanders, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. CLE and CPE credit are not offered for listening to this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission from PLI.